You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, as far as I know, this is, well, this has to be the first ever Leap Day episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. Yay! Hashtag making history. Yeah. If either of us were Ronda Rousey. No, this is some serious history right here. And let's just say it right now, we'll never be repeated. No, probably not. Uh, you have decided to celebrate Leap Day by bringing a giant can of Pacifico Yay! to record this uh, episode of the show. Did you also, I saw on social media earlier, you teased that you were going to take the bus over here. Took the bus. Actually, what I did was I took the bus downtown because my wife needed the car to take our daughter for her one-year doctor's appointment. Uh, and I took the bus downtown, had a, had a leisurely lunch downtown. Walked over here, stopped just long enough to buy this giant beer, and also an ice cream bar, which I ate on the walkover. And I didn't bring you shit. You did not. You did not offer me a beer. You did not bring me an ice cream cone. Nope. When you finish that beer, are you going to shove it in my mailbox? <laughs> we'll see. You wish Wait, that a I, beer can, as classy as this would be shoved I in your mailbox. In I should point out that that is not a euphemism, that I'm speaking <laughs> literally. Went out to check the mail today. Empty can of Coors Light. That's there, right. In the mailbox. If I can you, only assume Brock Lesnar is rolling down the street. If you having himself woke a fine up time. in the morning and found a beer of this quality in your mailbox, you would look around to see if you had moved. <laughs> yes. You would not believe point. it. Yeah. Well, I would know that some highfalutin motherfucker from up on the hill had been slumming it, probably trying to score some crank. Come down here, taken off his monocle, gotten lost, shoved a beer in your mailbox. Hey, man, drink up. Drink up. I hear uh, whatever happens on Leap Day stays on Leap Day. That's so right. Get get plastered. Real life for is for I March. Uh, ben, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by Fulton & Rourke. We're excited to have Fulton & Rourke back with us for another run of the flagship sponsor of the CME. They are a very cool men's grooming company based out of North Carolina, and they're big fans of the podcast. So we feel good about encouraging you guys to support them with your money. On top of that, Fulton & Rourke have some new products that they want you to know about. That's right, Chad. Fulton & Rourke just launched a new limited reserve addition to their line of solid wax-based colognes. It's called Escalante. Escalante. It features Haitian Velveteer. Vetiver? Vetiver? I don't know. I've never seen that word before. And then there's a V word. Italian bergamot and balsam for a bold yet dry fragrance that is sure to leave an impression. At this point, I feel like they're just messing with you with some of those ingredients. Successfully. Names. Yeah. On top of that, they just released their cologne refills, so you can keep your handy, shatterproof Fulton & Rourke cologne square for life. When your old supply runs out, just buy a refill and pop it right in the same metal square. Add those additions to the other great products we've told you about in the past, like the hand-milled bar soap, the foamless shave cream, and the face wash. And you can start to see why the CME is down with Fulton & Rourke. On top of that, there's a new promo code just for CME listeners. Starting today, enter the promo code CME2016 and get $15 off any purchase of $75 or more. Again, that's at the website FultonAndRourke.com. That's R O 
A-R-K, and the promo code is CME2016, all one word. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, you know, one of the coolest things about Anderson Silva was always that he had a fighting style all his own. This dude fought like he was from the future, like a character out of some damn video game. So, what happens when that style doesn't work anymore? And in round number two, I'd make a joke here about Holly Holm versus Misha Tate, but nobody has even thought enough about that fight to make it worthwhile. Mostly because of the utter insanity of round three. Seriously, you guys, one of you should probably give a fuck. This is kind of an important fight, so it would really be best... No? Neither neither of you are gonna give a fuck? I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck either. I, I don't give a fuck I either. I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. You're on steroids. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. I got it back. How you like that? You I did. got it back. Yeah, you're on the mend. Yeah. You can tell. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Scott Harris, who I assume is not the same Scott Harris that I work with at Bleacher Report, but he writes... In a recent episode, you two were discussing the future prospects for light heavyweight Misha Sirkinov following his draw-crushing submission over Alex Nicholson. This is one of my favorite things to do when following MMA, try to spot a young or inexperienced talent who will one day become a household name. As you continued your discourse, you both spoke well of Sirkinov and his skills, but consented that his path to the title might be difficult since he was in a division where John Jones, possibly the greatest of all time, is the current champion. I wholeheartedly agree with this assessment, even though it's not true. Jones is the once and future champion, but technically not the champion at all right now. What does it tell us about Daniel Cormier's legitimacy as a champion that we can right now refer to Jones as the champion without a qualifier attached, and is this acceptable? Talk about it, dudes. He got us. Yeah, fact check. Scott Harris got us. Scott Scott Harris, uh, co-main event podcast ombudsman, <laughs> writing in to let us know we done fucked up. We did, and you know what? I don't think there are a whole lot of other people who pointed this out to us. Nope. I think he's the only one who mentioned this error. Yeah, nobody else noticed, I guess. And people love to point out errors yeah, when we make Yeah, it's their favorite them. thing. Yeah. Uh, I guess what it really says is what we all already knew, though, which is to be the man, you got to beat the man. Right. Uh, remember when your dad sent you that email about Obama? And it had a bunch of... Which one? Well, this is the only one that I've heard an anecdote about. Okay. Uh, it had a bunch of falsehoods in it, a bunch of lies, and you replied to point out those falsehoods. That's right. And then I, he re replied just with like a Snopes link, yeah. just right away. And then he replied back to you to say, I feel like the email was still true in spirit. Right. This is why I don't reply to those emails anymore. I'm going to say that our discussion about the light heavyweight division may not have been factual, but was true in spirit, especially as it concerns... Uh, Misha Sirkunov, who, uh, by the time he gets his light heavyweight title shot, we all assume John Jones will either be the champion or will have moved on to heavyweight, especially since we've already seen John Jones fight Daniel Cormier once, and he beat him. These guys are going to fight again in April, and even the best case scenario there with a Daniel Cormier victory probably involves a third fight with John Jones. So even if you are as bullish as you possibly could be, on the light heavyweight title reign of Daniel Cormier, which, hey man, everybody likes DC. Uh, I still don't know a lot of people that would pick him in a best two out of three against the greatest light heavyweight of all time. So I'm going to say we had probably obviously already made that mental leap during yeah. our conversation. I, I have admitted that in the past I have caught myself when writing stories 
where I've mentioned just like UFC light heavyweight champion John Jones and then had either, you know, one of my editors pointed out to me or spotted it myself and realized, oh, wait a minute, he's not technically right now the UFC light heavyweight champion. It's so easy to forget because you still just think of him as being the best light heavyweight in the world uh, and it just kind of gets filled in, in in the mind brain there whenever you start thinking about it. Uh, I guess, though, you got to think Daniel Cormier understands the situation, right? Like, whenever he talks about it, he does the exact right thing, which is to say John Jones disqualified himself, taking a real wrestler right. guy approach yes. to it, uh, and, hey, it's not my fault. I just did what I uh, was asked to do, and he's absolutely right there. Uh, but he knows that in order for people to all around be looking at you like you're the UFC light heavyweight champion, you know, undisputed, as Bruce Buffer likes to shout, even in the situations where it is being disputed, like with an interim champ against the real champ, he'll still say that. He knows you got to beat John Jones if you if you want to have that legitimacy. I don't think that comes as a surprise to DC at all. But thanks to Scott Harris for writing in with the fact check. And uh, no thanks to the rest of you. It just just slid right past you. I don't know that we want to get too aggressive in uh, saying that people should write in with their fact checks. Because we've this is episode 194 of this show. We've done enough episodes of this show to know motherfuckers will fact check you even on non-facts, I guess you could say. <laughs> Wait, is this really episode 194? Yeah. We are six weeks away from episode 200. What are we going to do? main event podcast. Something huge. Can we get Conor McGregor? Yeah, I'm sure. Yes, I'm going to get Conor McGregor to sit in for you. Okay. So you just go ahead and drink Pacifico and take that week off. I'll be right out in the front yard. Second question this week comes from Sean Clark. He writes, undoubtedly, we're going to hear quite a bit from the UFC regarding records being broken on the number of fight pass subscriptions over the weekend. I suppose what I'm wondering is, number one, are these just hardcore fans that would have bought the pay-per-view anyway, making it a net neutral gain? And number two, are we fast approaching a global economy where pay-per-view buys are nothing more than a minor economic indicator of the real success of a large show. I thought you guys were sick of discourse, but then you used it in the, in the newsletter. So, discourse? Question mark? Got us. Got um, us with our own newsletter. I haven't, I haven't seen much bragging yet about what uh, Anderson Silva versus Michael Bisping may have done to Fight Pass subscriptions. Was there's there a little any? bragging. There's there a little some bragging. Uh, Eric Winter, the senior vice president of some in Fight Pass, uh, whatever the job title is, he did an interview with Ariel Helwani uh, after the show and talked about that it was a record-breaking and historic night for UFC Fight Pass. Hashtag Bro- history. Uh, broke all their records. Uh, and I talked to Eric Harris, uh, or Eric Winter, uh, sorry, Scott Harris, got done messed me up. Eric Harris was one of the uh, Columbine shooters, right? Wow. Wasn't it Eric Harris that's, and Dylan Klebold? Wow. See, that's kicking around back in the back of your mind. That's disturbing. Just tumbled you out just, your mouth without you even thinking about you, it. You come up with that. In this fairly lighthearted You're the discussion. one who came up with it. Okay. I'm just over here letting you know Eric what's going Winter, on inside your I, own head. I talked to him beforehand about the strategy, the thinking behind this. Uh, and it does seem like since he was hired, Fight Pass, they're trying to do a little more with Fight Pass. He mentioned their emphasis on making sure to get a good fight for the Fight Pass early prelim. Uh, you know, like this weekend, for example, we got Diego Sanchez and Jim Miller, like basically trying to take a fight that could be either main card or high up on the Fox Sports 1 broadcast portion, bringing it down for Fight Pass so that there's some reason to watch those other than just that you're a shit-eating wild man, as you like to say, 
for this MMA stuff, and you'll watch absolutely everything. Uh, and then this fight is another example of it, the Anderson Silva-Michael Bisping thing, which we'll talk more about later. Um, the question, as far as, like, you know, the that there are going to be claims of record-breaking and everything, and he made those claims. And Ariel Hawani, you know, to his credit in this interview afterwards, pushed him a little bit to say, like, give me a number. Was it a million? Was it more than a million? Was it a bi-? And there's no, there's not even edging close to giving you some kind of concrete stat. It's just saying, like, this one was bigger than all the other ones, but we don't know what all the other ones did, and we don't even know if you're telling us the truth. That's kind of the problem for UFC fight pass because you know every fight promoter wants to brag about their numbers and talk about how many people are watching and how popular they are, and yet they won't tell you anything. They they're just it, it becomes empty words for a while. So um, I don't know what we're expected to do with that. Eventually, I mean, come on, you know, tell us how many hamburgers you sold. Even even McDonald's puts it out on the sign, right? Yeah, I'm interested in these questions that Sean Clark asked. The first question where he asked, are these just hardcore fans that would have bought the pay-per-view anyway, making it a net neutral gain? I mean, I think that it goes without saying that anybody that would buy Fight Pass is probably a hardcore UFC fan, even though they've they've done a lot to uh, improve the service or try to improve the service. And I do think that Eric Winter was a great hire for them. He certainly uh, has been vocal and, and public in his leadership for Fight Pass. I think has has, you know done a good job taking it to the next level from where it was when they first started it. But it's still not to the point where like casual UFC guy is just going to sign up uh, and, and pay $10 a month for this thing and just keep it rolling. But I also feel like saying that even if it's just hardcore fans that sign up, that that's a net neutral gain for the UFC. I don't think that that's accurate because if those hardcore fans also buy the pay-per-view that is next weekend of Conor McGregor the, against uh, Nate Diaz at this point, uh, that's still ten dollars that the UFC didn't have before. That well, and if they them. If, if they let their subscriptions just keep running, right? Which is the sucker play as long as they don't have you inked to a subscription. Well, and here's the question: I think that we sometimes I think make the mistake of thinking that there are two categories of fans: hardcore and casual. And there are probably a lot of gradients in between there, where it's like people who are so hardcore about MMA that they are legitimately excited when Fight Pass adds another regional promotion that you've never heard of or never cared about to the lineup, and they get really psyched about that. The people who are watching, you know, Bellator post limbs uh, as a friend of the podcast, Suzanne Davis, has described him before. Like, if you're that hardcore, that is different than being hardcore to the point where you're like, well, I don't really care that much about the undercard of this UFC event in London, but Michael Bisping versus Anderson Silva, yeah, I got to see that. I'll think of that as a $10 pay-per-view to watch in the middle of the afternoon, and I can't I can't miss it. Like, I think that there are more kind of medium hardcore fans than we think about, and then there's the people all the way on the other end of the spectrum who are like, oh, that Kimbo Slice guy is fighting. Like, that's the biggest fight I've ever heard of since Ronda Rousey versus anybody. Uh, so I, I think that... Stuff like this, it does get to that next level of fans that are not the usual Fight Pass customer, not the people who are like, oh, wow, yeah, Tarek Safadine versus Hung Yu Lim, got to see that at 4 a.m. Like, this is a definitely a, a play for a different audience. And for that audience, I think it probably worked. Second question that was, uh, are we fast approaching a global economy where pay-per-view buys are nothing more than a minor indicator of the real success of a large show? Uh, I think we've, we've both said all along, eventually we're going to get to a future world where everything is on fight pass, just as, you know, everything will kind of be a la carte in terms of, uh, 
television viewing and probably movies as well. Like everything's going to be on the internet. Man, I look forward to that future world. And so that future world is going to be awesome. But I think we're still a long, long way away from that. As far as we know, pay-per-view sales still account for the lion's share of the UFC's uh, business. Yeah. And as long as we're in that state, as long as they are still in the business of primarily selling pay-per-views, then everything else is just kind of extra as far as I'm concerned. And I think you're right that the big drawback right now for Fight Pass is that it can't tell you, hey, look, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what your situation is, give us 10 bucks a month, we'll give you UFC programming, all of it, whenever. Uh, and they can't do that right now. And we've heard at it. At least not in America. They well, do that they, elsewhere. They can't do it necessarily, uh, in other places too. I, we heard from the same thing. I heard it on social media from some of the fans saying like, well, they advertise this as only available on Fight Pass unless you're in Germany. And then no, you don't really get, uh, to watch the main card on Fight Pass. Other people in like, you know, Finland being like, all right, let me sign up and watch this. No, I don't get it. Uh, that's the problem with having so many, different TV deals, different situations all over the place is that fight pass. Can't just tell you, give us this one set fee every month and we'll give you everything. If they could do it, as you said before, you'd probably be willing to give them more than 10 bucks. Oh, a month. Way more, way more. Uh, we got an email this week from somebody in Brazil, I believe who told me that they who told us that they, they get everything for $17 a month that they and believe it comes with Globo. They just get everything. But then Globo super, uh, Hardcore about Vitor Belfort, right? So they probably have to see a bunch of Vitor Belfort mm-hmm. stuff. That's what I've heard. When it's there's like no fight going Vitor on, Belfort. it's just it's just 24 hours a day of a feed of whatever Vitor Belfort's doing. You would watch that more than you'd like to admit. That's probably true. I would just have it in a window on my computer, on my browser. Uh, from Paul in Cork is the next uh, listener mail, I believe, from the fictional country of Ireland. He writes, long-time listener, first-time question asker. Well, my question is, when are you just going to m- go ahead and move the podcast to Tuesday? Because that seems to be the day the UFC breaks all the big news. However, if ye... See, this guy's writing yees and all over the place. Is this just from James Joyce? Did James Joyce write this? Flaunting his Irishness here. However, if ye did, would the UFC break all its news on Wednesday? Luckily, that's your problem, not mine. Smiley face. Uh, nah, we ain't moving the podcast. Nope. Not only would it create havoc in our personal lives, we would just there would just be another then internet meme about when news broke. Then yeah. just because just as much shit happens on Wednesday as it does on Tuesday. Well, and also when shit breaks on Tuesday, it usually you know it's like at any time during the day. Sometimes it'll be Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon. Like we still would have to pick a time that would be fairly arbitrary, and then stuff could still happen immediately after that, or even during while we're recording the podcast. Plus. Mainly, mainly, we fear change, and we are creatures of habit. And we got shit to do. And you know what we need is one of those deals where Globo just follows us 24 hours a day, and then when whenever news breaks, we can just turn to the camera, break the fourth wall, and just start pontificating. Hold forth. Oh, people don't people don't want that. Car- Parker Lewis can't lose style. Wow, just making a Parker Lewis can't lose reference on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, that'll be that'll be popular. Saved of, by the Bell style. A lot Zach of people Morris. will really appreciate that. Uh, you know what else is funny is that, uh, I think a lot of people who listen to this show imagine that this is just, that like we live together in a flop house, a CME <laughs> flop house where we, there's just a couple of bunk beds in the front room because people are always emailing us to be like, oh man, let's do a special episode because this press conference of Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz was crazy. Like we're just sitting there just waiting for shit to happen so we can hit the record button and just 
and start doing a podcast. I we do, have families. I do think of your house as a flop house. Well, I mean, that's not too far from the truth, but you don't live here. And when, when I was on the bus on the way here and I met uh, some nice homeless people and I was like, well, if you if you need a place to stay, the cold wind is a blowing outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I gave them your address. Yeah, free Coors Lights in the mailbox. Yeah. Which is to say, we're not going to do any more podcasts than one once a week. No. Nope. Probably always on Mondays. Yep. So maybe stop asking. Everybody deal with it. We do love you, though. Last question this week comes to us from River Douglas. I assume that's not his, real, his or her real name. Well, at least I feel like you pronounce this one right. Well, it's River Douglas. That's kind of hard to fumble. Yeah. That one. Unless... Unless, it, unless it's River Douglas. Well, I, if, if so, I want to party with River Douglas. Can we, as a community of fans, get one thing straight? UFC champions are people who have made a career out of literally fighting the toughest people that it is possible for them to fight. Jose Aldo, Rafael Dos Anjos, Fabricio Verdum aren't fucking scared to fight anyone. People who engage in this slander have no respect for the sport and should be derided by all MMA fans where possible, regardless of which particular fighters you might be a fan of. Well... I mean, amen to that. Yeah. Despite the fact that that Reaver Douglas may have said it in the most stringent possible terms, yeah, these professional fighters aren't. They're not. They're not worried, especially in the case of fighting Conor McGregor, where I feel like we'll probably talk about this later in the show. But uh, there's there's people lining up. Yeah. Like that, remember the outside fight. of that press conference where people were lined up around the block to get in to see Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz. That's like like what UFC fighters are doing to try to fight Conor McGregor. You know what I hear way more when I talk to uh, managers and coaches and trainers and stuff is I hear way more that they have to kind of tug on the leash a little bit to pull their fighters back to reality at times. Uh, and they can never say, I don't think this is a good fight for you because I think you'll lose. Uh, they couch it in different terms. Like they might say, that's a tough fight. Or maybe this isn't the right time for that fight or, you know, something else. Because if you, you know, Reaver Douglas is right in the sense that if you get into this business in the first place, you probably think that you're a really badass dude. But also once you've been in it for a while, you kind of seem to develop a weird outsized idea of your own powers. And even if you think like, okay, I recognize I have some losses here or there, but if you put me in against Cain Velasquez tomorrow, hey, one or two things goes right for me, man, I could beat him. And I think that more fighters think that way than think in the terms that the rest of us would. And it makes sense that the rest of us would look at these situations and go, oh yeah, he's turning this fight down because he's scared, because we would be scared. Yes. Uh, and they're not, they're not thinking of it at all in the same terms. Uh, at the very most, they're thinking of it as, this is a bad time for me to fight that dude. Or like, if I'm healthy, I beat the shit out of this dude, and right now I know that I am not healthy. And even that is a hard thing for a lot of fighters to realize. I remember talking to Mike Swick once, and I can't remember what fight it was he, he said he took. Maybe David Loazzo or something like that, where you know the UFC just called, Joe Silva just called him up, offered him this fight, and he said, on the spot, yeah, I'll take it. I'll, I'll fight whoever. Uh, and then had to call, you know, his own management. I think it was crazy Bob Cook at the time and, and just be like, Oh, by the way, I accepted a fight today. And he asked him with who and he told him, and, or maybe it was Yushin Okami. And, uh, he said that after he knew something was up because after he told him the name of the person he agreed to fight, there was just silence for a couple of seconds. And then it came back. Well, 
that's a tough fight. <laughs> like, they need that outside check because if you are in this to begin with and you are at this level of it, you don't have that internal check the way the rest of us do. Right. It's the great double-edged sword of the fighter's confidence. And I think also, uh, you know, one of the reasons it, – it plays also into one of the reasons why we see so many guys having trouble walking away from this sport. It's, it's because – you know, if it ever entered into your mind that you were going to lose, you wouldn't have gotten to this level in the first place. And if it ever entered into your mind that you could quit and walk away and go work in a bank, you wouldn't be George St. Pierre because you would have walked away and gone to work in a bank a long time ago. By the way, I want to be a member of the bank where George St. Pierre works because <laughs> that would be it's a good looking bank right there. It's like how we've talked about if we were going to fight somebody, if you told us like, all right, we had a fight lined up. At the Adams Center down uh -huh. here in Missoula okay, I'm interested. In, in April. Call my management. My first question that I want to ask is, is he a better fighter than me? <laughs> <laughs> and that's not a question that even comes up in their minds. Right. And they would like, in a, like I remember sitting down once, before he fought George St. Pierre, I was sitting down for lunch with Tiago Alves writing a Fight Magazine story on it. And I was trying to kind of as delicately as I could broach the topic of, this dude is the greatest welterweight of all time. What makes you think you're going to go in there and beat him? And his attitude, like it seemed like a life philosophy, it seemed, was, well, we'll see. Like anybody out there walking the planet says they're going to kick my ass. All right, let's see. Let's find out if that person is right. Uh, and there's only one way to do that. Whereas most normal people would be looking at it being like, let's see whose ass I can kick and I'll kick those asses. The other asses, I, only if I have to will I deal with that. Uh, and I, I, that's what I think Reaver Dugloss is getting at here, is that we come to this thing thinking of it the way we would think of it and not realizing that the way we would think of it is one of several reasons why we are not doing what those people are doing. Yeah, we wouldn't want to know if the person we're fighting is a better fighter than we are and professional mixed martial artists are like, well, I know that that gorilla is tough, but like... His ground game sucks. Like, if I get that gorilla to the ground, yeah. I will choke He's him He's a out. slow starter. That's right. <laughs> um, did we talk about on the show, though, that story of uh, Ryan Bader before he fought Anthony Johnson, where he was saying that even in his own gym, he would tell people who he was fighting, and they'd be like, oh, ah, <laughs> Ooh, that's a tough one. That's a tough fight, Anthony Johnson. I'm sure you'll be okay, though. I'm sure you'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll be fine. And he went through with it, right? It happened. Probably it was thought a thing, he would win, it was, too. It was a thing that happened. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, a fact check, I don't know, though we don't want to be too aggressive with those. No. You know how to get a hold of us. Man, someone hit me up on Twitter like two days ago to be like, how do I send an, an email to the podcast? I couldn't tell if they were trolling me or not. <laughs> I really hope they were. Because how you do it is you go to the website, comainevent.com, and you click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says... Email the podcast. Email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. It comes out every Friday morning, catches you up on the news and notes that we miss. I have a question, though. Yes. If I don't like the Breakfast of Champions, is there any way to unsubscribe and is it very, very difficult? Nope. It's like Fight Pass. We're just going to warehouse your personal information forever and ever. Oh, bummer. No, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Oh. See, you're acting like that guy on Twitter. Like you don't actually listen to the show. Like you want to email the show, but you don't listen to the show, so you don't know how. Also, I would like to be a guest. Yes. Because I'm such a big fan. God, we got so many of those this week. Uh, anyway, uh, it's really easy to unsubscribe the Breakfast of Champions. We think you'll like it, but if you don't. 
just unsubscribe. That's going to do it uh, for the intro portion of the show. We're going to get started with round number one right now. Ben, UFC Fight Night 84, a.k.a. UFC Fight Night Silva versus Bisping, went down from the O2 Arena in London, England over the weekend. Uh, and I am certainly not the first person to say this. I, I saw this, you know, on social media being kicked around by a few people. At times, this looked like uh, somebody doing an Anderson Silva impression out there. Like, like when Anderson Silva would do impressions of other fighters, it'd be like if an Anderson Silva from seven years ago did an Anderson Silva impression. Yeah, but the other way around. Okay. Because if Anderson Silva from seven years ago did an Anderson Silva impression, he would be faster and deadlier than the Anderson Silva we saw in the cage with with Michael Bisping this weekend. Uh, just it looked as though Anderson Silva kind of only knows one way to fight, and I guess you can't blame him for that since that one way to fight was super effective for about 10 years. Uh, but when he's out there kind of dropping his hands and backing up against the fence and and doing Rochambeau with his hands trying to create confusion or whatever with Michael Bisping, uh, that that's just not working anymore, as evidenced by the fact that Michael Bisping used those opportunities to punch him in the face a bunch of times. Well, it's not... It's not work. It's not not working disastrously. Like it's not failing horribly. But you're right in the sense that he had this style that was based around let me get you to try to punch me in the face so that I can miss it by just centimeters and create an opportunity for me to counter. And when your speed or your reflexes declines to the point where instead of Missing by centimeters, the guy is catching you. You know, the, it's you're walking such a razor's edge to begin with that as soon as the slightest bit of slowdown happens, the whole thing falls apart. It's not like with some other styles where it's like, well, the guy's shot isn't quite as fast as it used to be, or like his, he doesn't hit quite as hard as he used to. It, it is one of those styles where uh, you notice the the difference in it right away and. You're right. Do we want him to learn a completely new style of fighting at this point? Because I, I think that he would have to admit to himself, hey, wait a minute, you're 40 years old and this shit doesn't work anymore. And if you start admitting that to yourself right now, if you're Anderson Silva, then why wouldn't you just stop? Yeah, um, and in retrospect, maybe it's a style that obviously just wasn't going to age well. Kind of like, I guess we could theorize maybe a, a Lyoto Machida style isn't right. going to age well, or even like a Fedor Emelianenko style maybe isn't going to age particularly well since it's based on speed and reflexes, and but then those look, might be the first things that go when you hit 37, 38 years old. But then you look at the alternative when we see, or not necessarily the alternative, but other styles, like for instance, farther down on the card, we saw Brad Pickett and his style, where you're like, well, that one's not going to age well because it's going to age you quickly. Like Anderson Silva's style, at least, it allowed him to get this far uh, to the before he started to slow down and before it started to catch up with him, it's still probably one of the better styles in terms of how it's going to age for you. It's just that everybody gets 40 eventually, 
And this is what it looks like when Anderson Silva gets 40. And still, he almost beat Michael Bisping. Yeah, I was going to say, and yet, and yet, and maybe this shouldn't surprise us that a guy who is 40 years old would go out there and lose a step but still be able to show glimmers of the amazing fighter that he used to be. Uh, first of all, let's can, can we agree no real controversy here in this decision? I saw some people trying to say controversy. I thought it was a fairly, you know, a, a relatively close fight, but like a uh, a clear-cut win for Bisping, I thought. You know, I was a little bit surprised when it was first announced, and then I went back and watched it, uh, and it seemed clearer to me, especially... It seemed clearer mostly because Anderson Silva is giving away rounds at certain right. points. Like, after he has that big third round where he, he drops him at the end of the round with just a classic Dundasso knee, really, uh, waiting for the guy to, to turn and try to talk to the ref, kneeing him in the head, and then acting like the fight is already over. Yes. He did it. He played it by the book, man. He really he did. He just read the manual. Yeah. A rare uh, case of refereeing malpractice. Uh, sorry, Luke Thomas. Uh, from uh, Herb Dean there, I thought. Like, you think so? Herb Dean played that kind of poorly, man. Like when Bisping points at his mouthpiece, Herb Dean gets way out of position to go pick the mouthpiece up and then is kind of like four or five feet away and you can see that he tries to stop them. Right. He like he, he says stop like he wants to step in and put Bisping's mouthpiece in. And that's when Anderson Silva throws the knee. I don't think on purpose. I think just awkward timing wise, they both happen at the same time. Uh, just like kind of a. I mean, it's like we've said before, it's a really hard job, but like a rare instance of imperfection, I would say, from Herb Dean. I, I mean, I don't know. I always think that the the mouse mouthpiece thing, for one thing. If you want your mouthpiece, keep it in your mouth. Right. That's the the best way to handle that situation. But also, a guy's experience as Bisping, you know that it's not up to you to tell the referee. And he tries twice to tell the referee, uh, "Hey, let's let's stop a second so I can get my mouthpiece back." That's it's the referee who's going to tell you when it's time to stop so he can get your mouthpiece back in. And we've seen other fights where that's happened, where a guy has lost his mouthpiece and not gotten a chance to get it back because the referee is going to look for the natural break in the action uh, and. I don't, I don't necessarily think Herb Dean did anything wrong. I think what happened there was that when Michael Bisping turned his head to talk to him, he forced Herb Dean to have an interaction right. with him. He had to say something to him. And to me, it seemed like what he was saying to him was, stop talking to me and keep fighting. Oh, maybe that, I thought he was, he was calling for a break in the action there. Maybe I was mistaken. Uh, and it's easy to say in hindsight too, like what the referee has done wrong. A lot harder to do it in the heat of the moment out there. I just think leaving the mouthpiece on the mat until the end of the round or until you can call a stop is probably the right move there, especially when it's so late in the round. But he ne didn't necessarily know how late in the round it sure. was. I think it was only after he picked up the mouthpiece that you hear the 10-second clapper. And then maybe you're thinking, okay, we're almost to the end of the round. Why don't I just hang on to it? Right. Uh, you rather than... look up at the clock, too. You don't, as we've seen before, there's the clock in the arena. Right. And if you look up to look at the clock and then you hear the crowd go oh like has happened to every uh mma media member when you're sitting there on press row and you look at your keyboard for a second i'm i'm saying there's there's not a whole lot of good solutions for herb dean there it's michael bisping's fault like you can't be look and i think he admitted that afterwards so you can't be looking at the referee and trying to have a conversation with him when anderson goddamn silva Sure. Is standing 16 inches away from you sure i i mean it was a it, it was michael bisping's fault but at the same time i would hold a a it's just like such an awkward exchange and, and a failure of almost everyone involved that like 
I don't think that you can go online afterwards and, and claim that like Anderson Silva should have won the fight because of that exchange. It was weird enough that I'm willing to give everyone kind of a pass. Right. Well, I also that. think that scoring wise, this is kind of a nightmare for the 10 point must system, uh, this fight. Because you have a bunch of wild swings, and you have a bunch of wild swings kind of late in fight. Like, late in the first round, Michael Bisping rocks Anderson Silva a little bit. He drops him in the second round. The third round, uh, Anderson Silva gets a little more aggressive, but then drops him with that weird knee at the very end of the round. But, damn, it seems like he is pretty much knocked out there for a couple seconds. Then in the fourth round, Anderson Silva, even though he has Bisping hurt, and even though Bisping's corner really didn't get a chance to do much like recuperative work for him Anderson Silva spent most of the damn round on top of the cage having to have it explained to him that the fight was not over uh, and you expect that maybe Anderson Silva will be the one to go hard and try to finish it in the fourth round when Bisping still seems like he has not collected himself and instead he kind of lays back there and gives away that round yeah uh, lets Michael Bisping get back into it and then in the fifth round when he when he comes on again and he hurts Bisping several times you, there's like, when I was watching it, there was a part of me that wanted to say to him, you realize this is the last round, right? And you're probably losing. You're, right. you're probably losing on the scorecards, and yet he was not fighting like he had to finish that fight. Yeah, which I think that was the point I was trying to make before we got involved in a long digression about Herb Dean, but like, glimmers of the old Anderson Silva here, but at the same time, uh, a lot of listlessness, which is not necessarily new for him. We've seen him have very listless performances in the past. Uh, but this seemed like a, like, a situation where he felt no urgency, as you said, like he was just kind of taking it as it comes. And I was wondering, like, is that like a reflexive style of fighting for a guy who assumes that he will knock the other man out at some point? Because that's how he spent his entire career was knocking people out. Or is there something else going on there where age has hampered Anderson Silva to the point that maybe the killer instinct that we saw from him in the past just isn't there anymore? I mean, we saw a couple instances in this fight where he seemed to get aggressive and like, quote unquote, the old Anderson Silva seemed to be coming out. But it seemed to me like, had he done more of that, he very well might have won this thing. I think it's more of a just general fighter thing where he thought the the moments where he had done good stuff had really stuck out in his short term memory there. The moments where Michael Bisping had done good stuff had not. And he just really thought that he was ahead on the scorecards when he wasn't. Uh, thought that he, you know, he must have thought during that fifth round, well, I'm clearly winning this round, and I won the, the third, and maybe he thought he had one other one. Uh, I don't think it was a, so much that he he's missing something, uh, or at least not missing anything new. You know, he, he still had that kind of Anderson Silva lackadaisical kind of attitude at points in the fight, which, you know, that's just kind of an integral part of his style at this point. Uh, but I think that he just thought he was farther ahead than he was. Uh, and I, you know, going back at, like watching it live, I thought it was closer. Uh, and I thought, man, well, maybe Michael Bisping benefited from that fight being in London. And then going back and watching it today, it did not seem quite that close, mainly just because, uh, Anderson Silva seemed to be for a lot of the fight, just waiting for, for some big opening, waiting for some big moment that didn't come. Well, let's spend at least a couple minutes here talking about Mike Bisping. I don't want to just totally shortchange him and talk about Anderson Silva this entire round. Uh, does this win historically come with an asterisk of sorts? Like, obviously, this is the, 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 the best guy Michael Bisping has ever beaten. And like, and I think it's tempting to say that this is 
his career defining victory, especially when you go down the list and you look at guys he's beaten in the past compared to guys he's lost to. He's kind of lost to every, uh, elite A-list fighter he's ever fought in the past. And then he comes out and he beats Anderson Silva, obviously a fight that he wanted for a really long time. How much, as we look back on this fight, do we have to parenthetically say he beat the old version of Anderson Silva, that he beat 40 year old Anderson Silva, not in his prime 33 year old Anderson Silva? Or yeah. do we, are we just fine saying Michael Bisping beat Anderson Silva? Let's have a fucking parade. Well, I'm not quite to the have a fucking parade point, right? Like you, you have to admit what we're dealing with here. I mean, granted, it was 37 year old Michael Bisping that beat 40 year old Anderson Silva. So, so maybe it's all equal. I don't know if it's all equal, but the same way, like we talked about that before this fight, how it seemed like kind of a Twilight Zone version of wish fulfillment for Michael Bisping that for years he'd been telling us he wanted a shot at the UFC title where everybody was telling him, are you insane? Anderson Silva will murder you. Uh, and then now he finally gets this, this shot after the glory days of Anderson Silva are over. Uh, and he does beat him. You know, he's, he's older. Anderson Silva's older. All that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, it does not do anything to convince me that the Michael Bisping of six years ago beats the Anderson Silva of six years ago. I still think he would have gotten murdered then. Uh, but I think that, you know, Michael Bisping, I always think, has gotten a little bit shortchanged by MMA fans and even MMA media just because of his, his kind of his persona, his attitude. And other fighters have even said the same thing that, they don't like him as a person. He's kind of has a grading personality. And so that they, it takes away a little bit of what they, they assume his skills to be. And when you actually see him in these fights, I mean, and you know, you mentioned the other A-list fighters who have beaten him. And even guys like, like Chael Sonnen have talked about, Hey, Michael Bisping is a lot tougher than people think. And Chael Sonnen was saying that when he talked to, when he took that fight, Dan Henderson called him and said, Hey, don't believe this stuff. People say that Michael Bisping's just a pushover. Like he can hit you and hurt you. Like, I think that he is a much better fighter than people give him credit for. I still think that there's a little bit of a old guy asterisk next to the win over Anderson Silva. But that's not his fault. Yeah, uh, looks like Michael Bisping now trying to pick himself a fight with Nick Diaz, which seems Why not? like a great fight for him at this point. And I don't know what to do with Anderson Silva if he decides he wants to go on. Anyway, though, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two today. Uh, ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? for this week? Chad, I don't know if you saw this. I saw it via Twitter, uh, but a local TV news station in Australia, and I believe Perth, Australia, uh, included in their video story uh, about Ronda Rousey that her PR people insisted that they not ask her any questions about fighting. Hmm. And this is something we also recently heard. We had a, a video guy for us sit down with her in Los Angeles recently, and I believe it was basically, hey, talk to her about the EA UFC uh, video game. What everyone wants to talk to her about. Yeah, um, and don't ask about any of these other topics that are of actual interest to people right now concerning Ronda Rousey. And our guy did what most reporters do in that situation, which is stay noncommittal and try to get the baseline of what you need and then ask your questions anyway at the end when if they cut you off all of a sudden it's not a huge deal to their credit the local seven news perth people 
They made it their story. They turned on their camera while the PR people were saying, don't ask this fighter about fighting. Otherwise, the interview is done on the spot immediately. And they made that basically the backbone of their story. I'm just saying to Ronda Rousey's PR team, are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? You want to take a fighter all around in front of all these media people and tell them not to ask her about fighting? I have an idea. Why don't you just do the story yourself? Why don't you just get the camera? You just point it at her. You ask her exactly what you want to ask her. Stay away from all the questions you don't want to have her answer. Uh, and then you just distribute it out to everybody and everybody else will just put their watermarks on it and put their names on the stories. Uh, oh, wait, we don't do that because no one would watch your bullshit then because they would realize it's basically just a press release. Are you fucking kidding me? You're fucking kidding me. If you're going to put somebody in front of reporters, let them ask their questions. Crafty Australian TV news people. Well, Ben, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? <coughs> really? Yeah. I'm just going to step all over my are you fucking uh, kidding go me? Go on. Uh, well, now I have another are uh, you fucking chew? kidding me to do after this is over. Uh, my are you fucking kidding me, I was going to say before I was rudely interrupted, is two-pronged. First of all, a hearty are you fucking kidding me out to Bellator MMA for even having Quentin Rampage Jackson back in the fold now that their legal wranglings are over with. But really, the true Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week must go out to Rampage himself after he appeared on the Fortnite this past week and mentioned two names as possible guys that he would like to fight next. Now, normally you wouldn't think of Kimbo Slice as the more legitimate of two names that a guy who's probably a top 10 all-time light heavyweight like Rampage would want to fight. But that's where we're at, Ben, because the other guy that Rampage mentioned that he wanted to fight, is former Ultimate Fighter contestant Daryl Shunover, who most people probably remember as the dude that Rampage Jackson tried to bully by calling him, quote-unquote, titties, titties the whole time. And then, basically, the guy was never heard from again after tough filming wrapped. I checked his sure dog fighter page to find out Daryl Shunover still fighting as of the end of 2015, but still... Are you fucking kidding me, Rampage? Have we reached the sad end of your career where you're going to be on the MMA hour lobbying, making a case for yourself to fight titties, Daryl Shunover? Are you fucking kidding me? You're kidding me? You're feeling froggy. Go ahead and jump. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. Titties. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, for the first time in UFC history, a women's bantamweight title fight that does not include Ronda Rousey. Holly Holm, current UFC women's bantamweight champion, going to defend her title against Misha Tate at UFC 196 in Las Vegas this weekend. And it's the co-main event. How you feel about that? Hashtag making history? Is that what you're saying? First time in Hashtag UFC history? making history. Hashtag. Like, at this point, it has to, you have to include something else that says, like, hashtag actually making history. Because this is actually history to have Ronda Rousey not involved in a UFC women's bantamweight title fight. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, it seems like it could potentially be a big moment for Holly Holm, right? She kind of burst onto the scene when she knocked Rousey out at UFC 193 
last November. Uh, in the wake of that, Ronda Rousey continues to kind of be the biggest news in women's MMA. I mean, no matter what she does, uh, Holly Holm kind of had the uh, brief stint where she she picked up all of Ronda Rousey's media requirements, but then. You know, it was Ronda Rousey that uh, Ellen DeGeneres wanted to have on the show and sit down on the couch and, and talk about depression. Like she didn't want to have Holly Holm on to talk about what was going on in the women's bantamweight division. I bet you Holly Holm will let you ask her about fighting. No, also, yeah. bet you Holly Holm can eat an apple whenever she wants. I, I bet. Just any time. I bet that's true. Uh, so it's tempting to say that this fight against Misha Tate it would be like her time to try to come out of Ronda Rousey's shadow, like the old cliche, you don't actually become the champion until you defend the belt. But at the same time, man, like, is that even possible? Or are we just going to all go on existing in, in Ronda Rousey's, Rousey's shadow as long as she, as long as there's even a glimmer that she will come back to fight? Well, she does have one thing going for her, which is being on the same card as Conor McGregor. Sure, yeah. I think we, at the time we said that, like, that really softens the blow like a lot has happened since this fight was announced but you know the original conventional wisdom was that holly Holm should wait to fight ronda rousey at ufc 200 back when we thought that was going to be possible and i think accepting a fight in the interim uh was made palatable and financially viable by being on the same card as conor mcgregor uh so i don't think like the co-main event spot is going to bother anyone too much as long as everybody's getting a cut of the pay-per-view money uh and it still seems like a smart fight for holly holm to take a smart spot for her to be in uh i guess the the natural next question though ben is uh how tough a fight does Misha Tate serve up to uh, the undefeated new women's bantamweight champion? Depends. Is Holly Holm trying hard this time? Or is she still holding stuff back? Maybe she and Mike Winklejohn are going to cook up a conservative game plan, show what they want to show, so when Ronda comes back, she won't know about the, the spinning shit, the jumping kicks that they have they've been working on in training. Well, I think actually, you know, we, ju- we, we jest about this, but I think that this is actually a good... Uh, litmus test kind of for because we wondered wait a minute were you really telling us that you were not trying to fight as well as you can possibly fight in these other fights leading up to the ronda rousey one um and at this point there would really be no point in doing that anymore right because you beat the shit out of ronda rousey so she knows that you're a good fighter you're not going to fool her at this point and you don't need to fool anybody so do you just let it all hang out against misha tate and that is some you know you would think so, yeah. You would think you'd do whatever you need to do to go out there and beat her. You're the champ now. Um, so it will be interesting to see how she fights Misha Tate. However, it's a different kind of fight. You know, it's not the same style-wise. It's, it's not the same kind of fight. Sure, yeah. Misha Tate is going to bring her <coughs> her own uh, wrestling base to this fight, which obviously is going to be different than the, the style of grappling that Ronda Rousey had in, the, in her fight with Holly Holm and... and uh, it's, you know, Misha Tate is on a win streak herself. She's won four fights in a row since the last time she fought Ronda. Uh, and is the kind of win streak that I'm kind of, I don't know how we want to characterize it because she beat a lot of top level bantamweights, Jessica I, Sarah McMahon, uh, Liz Carmouche, uh, and Rin Nakai also in there. Don't forget that one. Um, but still th- without a Wikipedia page, se- Rin Nakai. Several of these wins, maybe all three of these wins. I don't, I can't remember all of them. Uh, as they went down every second of it. But, like, a couple of these ones were ones where Misha Tate kind of had to gut it out, dig deep, come back from an early deficit, and, and they win were the all decision. that way. Yeah. So there you go. So the, we've got this four fight win streak. Do we want to phrase this as the win streak that proves Misha Tate will find a way to win? Or do we want to phrase this as the win streak that says Misha Tate is beatable? 
Well, I think we all knew Misha Tate was beatable, but I, I do think that if there's anything that that win streak tells you, it's that in terms of fight IQ, uh, Misha Tate will find a way later on in fights to, to figure out what she needs to do. Although, against Holly Holm, she's fighting a far more dangerous opponent than any of those other uh, fighters that she faced. And I still think she loses this one. I mean, Holly Holm is, what, like a 3-1 to one favorite thereabouts right now, uh, and deservedly so. I think that Misha Tate probably not going to be able to take Holly Holm down. I think Holly Holm going to light Misha Tate up on the feet. You know, we can always be surprised. Um, but one of the things that I, I think that Holly Holm brings that we don't see too much in the women's bantamweight division is a fighter who can really hurt you on the feet and put you away there. There's not a whole lot of those at uh, the women's 135-pound division right now. Uh, and somebody where Misha Tate has to go in there for five rounds and fight her, knowing, you know, and not under the understanding, like, I'm going to get all five rounds to work, like, maybe this person can actually knock you out before that time, uh, I think that that creates a challenge that I'm not sure how Misha Tate overcomes. I just don't think that she's sharp enough on the feet. I don't think she uh, is quick enough, athletic enough. I don't, you know, I feel like Misha Tate has to win a decision over Holly Holm, whereas Holly Holm can probably knock Misha Tate out. Uh, and I think that that's the, the, the big problem for, for Misha Tate going into this one. Yeah, Holly Holm going off at between negative 330 and negative 420 in this bout. So a fairly sizable favorite. In fact, that was one of the things that we always talked about might be one of Ronda Rousey's saving graces with it. It just didn't seem like there were a lot of women in this division who could knock you out with one shot. So uh, we always kind of theorized, even if Ronda got herself in trouble on the feet, it wasn't like she was going to get one punch KO'd and that, that she would probably be able to corral someone into the clinch and then use her judo from there to, to get a victory. Uh, we didn't necessarily count on her getting her whole shit broke. Whole shit broke. When Holly Holm uh, kicked her in the face. Now, hashtag whole shit broke. The best thing Holly Holm can probably do for her media profile is also break Misha Tate's whole shit with a head kick or, or some kind of uh, highlight reel finish. Uh, and as we all, as we both said, she's capable of doing that. Is she capable, though, of turning the media onto the women's 135-pound division in general? Or was all of this, like, mainstream appeal uh, that, you know, at one time caused the UFC to say that the women fighting was the, the biggest thing it had going? Was that all just Ronda Rousey? Or is the mainstream media just flat, not really interested in, in female MMA fighting in addition to that. Well, I, th I think it's a mistake for us to look at this and say, here's the fight where Holly Holm has to step out of the Ronda Rousey's shadow. Because she doesn't yet, and she's not going to. Like, this fight, we all know what's going to happen. Is she's going to come in there, we're going to all be talking about Ronda Rousey, even though she's not there. Uh, if Holly Holm does indeed break Misha Tate's whole shit, then immediately immediately before Misha Tate is even up on the stool again with people asking her how she feels and telling her where she is, immediately we're going to be talking about Ronda Rousey and uh, a rematch with Holly Holm, and that's just that's just how it's going to be. And I think that's fine. Like, we should all kind of, in advance, make our peace with that. Because she has a good situation here where it's a Conor McGregor card, so you already know there's going to be a lot of interest and you're defending your title here. Everybody's already talking about Ronda Rousey, no matter what she says or does elsewhere. They're going to see you going in there defending that title, 
and then immediately the focus is going to turn to Ronda Rousey and lead like a runway straight into the rematch whenever that happens to be. So she doesn't need to step out of the shadow right now. Like, she knows that the next fight after this is most likely Ronda Rousey. You can go in there and break Misha Tate's whole shit, you know, if if, that, if that's how it goes. Then head straight into Ronda Rousey fight, deal with however that goes, and then after that is when we're going to start asking the questions of are people still into this when Ronda Rousey's not involved and maybe not involved for the foreseeable future. I enjoyed a couple of things about the early days of the Holly Holm championship reign. First, that it seemed like, at least according to her manager, that they called up the UFC and said that they wanted to fight Cyborg at a catchweight, which I thought was an awesome move on their part. And also, like, kind of implicit in that same interview, kind of made it seem like maybe Holly Holmes' management team offered to have the UFC, like, basically they were like, hey, let's start a women's featherweight division, and Holly can go up there and be champion, and then you guys can have Ronda back at, at 135, which, uh, that's just considerate. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> man, that's uh, gentlemanly. If I had to choose one word to describe Holly Holmes' management, I would say cagey. Yeah, well, I'm on board at this point. That's going to do it, though, for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, this seems like another one of those instances where it feels like it's been about two years since we recorded the co-main event podcast instead of just one week. Uh, since last week, with the podcast still hot off the presses, the industrial strength uh, drill and, and press that we use to make the podcast yeah. are still warm from usage. Yeah, it gets really hot down there. When uh, Rafael Dos Anjos pulled out of the fight with Conor McGregor due to a broken foot. I believe the technical term is broke-ass foot. Broke-ass foot or bruised foot, if, you're, <laughs> right. if you are a doctor from the fictional country of Ireland. Uh, and therein was kind of a mad scramble to find a, kind of try to find Conor McGregor a replacement opponent, ultimately settling on one Nathan Donald Diaz, which led to a press conference at a UFC gym in Torrance, California, where it looked like the UFC brought some 90s WWE wrestlers as security. Uh, which I assume probably paid for out of Dave Schaller's pocket, since right. he understands full well the position that he's in up there. Uh, and then, Conor McGregor wore a tank top. Conor McGregor wore a tank top because I bet he didn't have his suits. He wasn't expecting this. It's all late breaking. And so uh, those guys yelled, I don't give a fuck at each other for like 45 minutes, and we called it good. I had a good time. It was a good time. I think it kind of underscored a couple of things to me, both uh, – Conor McGregor's brilliance, again, at the trash talking, even though you could tell he wasn't at full strength, that he I, had to dig back into an old composition notebook for uh, some stuff that he had probably written about the Diaz brothers before. I saw that you you wondered out loud beforehand what his short, short notice trash talking game would be like. And I got to say, referring to Nate Diaz repeatedly as Nick's little brother. Yes. That's good stuff. It does, it does feel both like short notice trash talk game and also how that man can still deliver yes. in, in a pinch. Two best lines were the line about balloon animals, obviously, and then the line where McGregor said, 
uh, most people sign to fight me, they call their wife and say it's red panty knife. We're, we're rich, baby. And uh, Nate calls Nick, which that was my second favorite line from that. But the other thing that I thought this reinforced to me is that the Diaz brothers are the dudes that Conor McGregor is not going to be able to get into their head with this trash talk. I would theorize, although fuck, man, I said the same thing about Jose Aldo and we saw how that worked. Uh, but that Nate Diaz is just going to sit over there like eighth grade style and yell, I don't give a fuck and repeat you're on steroids and not necessarily be affected by the stuff that's coming out of Conor McGregor's mouth. Well, you like, you won't be able to get in their heads because they invite you in and invite everybody oh, yeah, into their heads. Just come into planet Diaz, make yourself at home. Yeah. It's like, and don't be scared, homie. That's right. It's like, you know, trying to make it personal, against those guys doesn't work because there has never been a single fight that they have been in that they have not taken extremely personally. Like they do not do that. Just like, Hey, we're all professional athletes here, uh, doing a job kind of thing. Like they live their gimmick, uh, in a lot of senses, uh, especially when it comes to that kind of stuff that they, they are not here to think of it as a sport. They definitely think of it as, gladiator deathmatch kind of shit every single time. So how can you escalate it beyond that? Where do you take it from there with those guys? Yeah, it's hard to one-up them Yeah, in that department. Uh, Conor McGregor currently going off a little bit more as than a 4-1 to one favorite at most sports books. Uh, that seems right to me, although there's a lot of unknowns, I think, in this fight. Not only McGregor, well, he's supposed to be going up to 155. Now he's going to fight a, another lightweight in Nate Diaz, but fight him at 170. Uh, so this will be a new experience in seeing Conor McGregor a full two weight classes above where he has previously fought in the UFC. Uh, and, you know, there's also Nate Diaz's skills, I think, to, uh, contend with here and the Diaz brothers obviously known for their high volume striking game uh and and a stand-up attack that is probably going to play right into the teeth of what Conor McGregor brings since I think we all expect Nate Diaz to go straight at him on the feet but both Diaz brothers are also very adept on the ground are all bets off here if Nate Diaz somehow gets Conor McGregor onto the ground well the way I see it there are three big variables that we don't know how they're going to play one is nate diaz's condition that he took this fight on extremely short notice i mean the diaz brothers in general they tend to stay in pretty good shape they are not known for you know getting way out of the gym and getting way overweight or or drinking and partying too much they're riding around on bikes and doing triathlons and whatnot you know nick probably a little more so than nate but still you don't worry too much about that, but you never know when a guy's taking on short. I mean, I think what everybody's really concerned about is that he's going to fail a, a weed test uh, on such short notice without a chance to do the GNC system flush or whatever it is that he's doing. Uh, the second one, I think, is size and how Conor McGregor has gotten by and and made his bones as a really hard-hitting featherweight. And how does that translate against a bigger dude, a dude who's fought at lightweight and welterweight? Like, do... Do the knockout shots that are just planting dudes face first uh, with that left hand at featherweight, does a guy who can fight at 170 take those and keep walking right through them? And I, I don't know yet. I mean, I think that that's one of the really interesting things about this fight. And then the third one, I think, is the, the ground game. The problem is because for the exact same reasons that the, you can't get in the Diaz brothers' heads, 
they don't initiate uh, instances where they might be able to take it to an area where they have a greater strength. Like this, that same kind of like just truculent, everything is personal attitude does not allow them to say, well, hey, this guy might be better than me in one area, so let me take it to another area. Like, they just don't do that, even when it'd be a smart thing for them. I like, even remember Nick Diaz in that Carlos Condit fight, where he spends the whole fight chasing him around, saying, oh, we're throwing spinning shit, where are you going? You're a bitch-ass punk, trying to slap him, and then at the very end gets him down on the ground and almost immediately gets into a super advantageous position, and you're wondering, why didn't you do this to begin with? Oh, right, because that would, admi- like, that would require you to admit that maybe you didn't have the advantage in at least one area, which they just can't bring themselves to do. Like, every time you see those guys grapple, it's almost always because somebody else initiates it. Uh, I think that if they got to the ground fight, man, I'd, I'd really love to see what Nate Diaz could do. I think it'd be his best chance for victory against Conor McGregor is to get it to the ground. But do you see him trying to single-leg Conor McGregor? I don't. Yeah, see, that's the trouble. I don't know how exactly he gets him there, and I think you're right that uh, the Diaz brothers are, are – I mean, Nate's going to go out there and, and try to have a fight. I think that's kind of what – that's his whole MO. He just wants to go out there and have a fight. I do think it would be kind of hilarious if Nate Diaz beat Conor McGregor because then I don't know what you do if you're the if the, you're the UFC with that. I guess you send Conor McGregor back to featherweight even though it doesn't seem like he really wants to fight there anymore. Uh I mean, there's a lot of built-in excuses if you end up needing them. I mean, you know, late opponent change, he's a featherweight fighting a lightweight at welterweight. The whole shit is weird. Yeah, and this is the third time in what Conor McGregor's, this will be his eighth fight in the UFC. This is the third time that he will fight someone who comes in on very short notice, right? He's fought Diego Brandao when he was supposed to fight Cole Miller. He fought Chad Mendez the first time he was supposed to fight Jose Aldo. Now he'll fight Nate Diaz on very short notice. Uh, when he was supposed to fight Rafael Dos Anjos. Uh, and I don't want to make it seem like we're just looking for reasons to doubt Conor McGregor because after you watch him knock out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds, I think we can all say it's pretty clear he's got the goods in at least one aspect of fighting. But, like, he talks a lot about how, you know, when it's time to sign the fights, everybody goes running, as he says. Uh, but this plays both ways, doesn't it? Like, he benefits from these late replacements maybe as as much as... Uh, the the fighters that he believe he says at least are 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 taking timeouts. Yeah, because he gets to fight guys who aren't necessarily ready to go. He does, but he doesn't get to have really any say in that, right? And you know that the same way that other people are banged up, you know he's banged up. You know he talked about it after the Chad Mendes fight that you know he had a, a bad knee injury going into that one. Like as much as we're gonna give, you know we're gonna try to take away from him for getting to fight a bunch of late replacements you got to also give him his credit for not pulling out for being the dude who always shows up when he says he's going to show up which if there's anything we've learned about mma over the years it's that that in itself is a kind of skill just to be able to show up on the days you committed to show up that's tough to do not a whole lot of people can do it consistently yeah you then you do have to give him credit for that uh i guess he wins this and when we're 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 on to UFC 200, uh, where I continue to hold, you will see him fight Robbie Lawler, if if everybody is down with that. Uh, Man, if you imagine, say you're Conor McGregor, you fight a Diaz brother in March, then you fight Robbie Lawler in July. Who do you fight like by the end of the year to complete your year of fighting people who don't give a 
fuck. <laughs> Who's the who? Who completes the trifecta for it's, you there? That's a really good open-ended question. I have no Matt idea. Brown. Yeah, there you go. I guess that would be a that's a good option. Uh, it seems like Rafael Dos Anjos. We were already laying the groundwork to skip Rafael Dos Anjos at this press conference when Conor McGregor said it would be hard for him to turn around and sign that sign to fight him again. Uh, so yeah, if if this comes out as planned and Conor McGregor beats Nate Diaz, gonna be really interesting to see what happens after that. And I get the feeling both Frankie Edgar and Jose Aldo are gonna be real mad. They real, will real are, mad. Are you saying they will really give a fuck? <laughs> yes, they will be fighting each other for a vacant featherweight title, which I guess, as consolation prizes go, ain't too bad. Right. It's it's not red panty night. It's you know uh, it's like gray cotton panty night. Yeah, but... you could do you could do worse though. Right. All right. Well, Ben, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Unless there's any last stuff you want to say about Conor McGregor, nope, against Nate Diaz, other than the fact that we're jacked about it. Uh, I guess this week, Ben, I'm just saying that the last week or two has really succinctly pointed out. What a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of position that Bellator MMA is in, especially when you juxtapose it so closely with what the UFC was able to do when the main event of, of UFC 196 fell apart last week. Um, as everybody knows, a couple Fridays ago, we saw Bellator 149, which at least from a rating standpoint was a huge success. It scored the biggest ratings in the company's history from all accounts, uh, just a smashing success until, of course, one of the co-main event fighters damn near died. Even before that, it seemed like most of our responses to this event were to mock Bellator and laugh at it uh, for putting on the kind of circus fights that it knows it has to put on to get get ratings. The following week, as we talked about on the show, uh, it tried to take a more safe and sane approach by booking a bantamweight title fight between Marcos Galvao and uh, Eduardo Dantas, which I believe I said last week was going to be watched by absolutely Nobody. I think what you said was nobody. Nobody. Uh, and, you know, in, so it books this legitimate MMA fight that, that we talked about was probably not going to get great ratings. And then 24 hours before it was supposed to happen, Galvao drops out with an, with an illness. And so they really have no choice but to, uh, cancel that, that fight and, and do the show without their title fight. So really, I guess this, this week I'm just saying, man, it really, underscores how the UFC is playing with a whole different deck of cards than Bellator because they have a guy drop out of the lightweight title fight the same week and and in about two hours they got 10 guys wanting to jump on the card to fight Conor McGregor for a lucrative payday at least 10 Bellator you lose you lose one of your champions and nah there's just nowhere to go there you just got to cancel that bad boy that's depressing it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, the other approach is to book those circus fights where now it turns out people will almost die. <laughs> and other people will love that, apparently. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, I don't know if you tuned in early enough on this UFC Fight Pass card to watch the bantamweight fight between Davy Grant and Marlon Vera. Those, see, those are not real people. This is like last week <laughs> when you made the fake fight and you wanted me to guess which one it was. Now... I'm hip to your games. I know the fake fights now. This one is a real fight, Chad Dundas. A couple just things here. One thing uh, I learned on Twitter, I opine that it seemed like the British are the last people to go around calling a grown man Davey instead of, say, Dave or David. Uh, And I was informed that basically, you know, Dave or David is a person's name. Davey is a name that you earn. 
uh, kind of by being a crazy son of a bitch, yeah. uh, okay. which I can appreciate yeah. uh, a lot more. And it makes sense why Davy Grant is a UFC fighter. But also, this was a fight where Marlon Vera had a lot of problems following the rules. And referee Mark Goddard was having none of it. Got on his ass right away for grabbing inside Davy Grant's gloves. Uh, and also got in his ass about it in the way that, like, just your frustrated high school football coach would do. Like, just not not trying to hear any back talk from you whatsoever about it, you know, as equal parts disappointed and mad at you about it. And then finally, in the third round, after several such uh, fouls from Marlon Vera, took a point away and did it without even pausing the action. The shit was happening right there. The fighters were on the ground. He didn't even step in, tell the guys to stop face the always tricky questions of do you stand him up or does that reward the guy who committed the foul? Uh, where do you restart him or anything? Just let him keep fighting and just told all the judges where he was standing. All right, take a point from this dude. And you. meanwhile, you guys on the ground fighting, don't worry about it. You keep fighting. I'm talking to the judges right now and telling them that this guy has fucked up one too many times. I'm just saying, I feel like referee Mark Goddard doesn't change the game, Chad. And in a very useful and very necessary way, I think that maybe he just wrote the blueprint for how you do this shit. I'm just saying. Wow, high praise. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 196 with Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz and Holly Holm and Misha Tate. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So, does that mean you didn't watch the fight between Timu Pakalin and Tybalt Multi? No. Come on now. I know. I'm, I know what's going on here. You're trying to haze me. Some How about the fight between fights. Daniel O'Melian and Jarja Stanley? Now it's just you're making a fool of yourself. <laughs>